This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And I suck you up and I spit you out and I play with your babies till you scream Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Shireen Ahmed, freelance sports writer, sports activist in Toronto, Canada. And on this week's panel, we have the fiery and brilliant Amira Rose Davis, assistant professor of history and women's gender and sexuality studies at Penn State. We have all-round badass Jessica Luther, independent writer, general slayer, and author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape in Austin, Texas. Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History and Undeniable Genius at Hofstra University in Long Island, New York. We have a great episode this week with two very important interviews. After we discussed women's soccer and the gong show that is often seen in the football world, Jessica speaks with ESPNW reporter Katie Barnes about Martina Navratilova's op-ed, and then Lindsay will speak with Susan Elizabeth Shepard and the news around New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft. Before we start, I would like to thank our patrons for their generous support and to remind our new flamethrowers about our Patreon campaign. You pledge a certain amount monthly, as low as $2 and as high as you want, to become an official patron of the podcast. In exchange for your monthly contribution, you get access to special rewards. With the price of a coffee a month, you can access extra segments of the podcast, a monthly newsletter, an opportunity to record on the burn pile, only available to those in our Patreon community. So far, we have solidified funding for proper editing transcripts, but are hoping to reach our dream of hiring a full-time producer to help us with the show. Burn It All Down is a labor of love, and we all believe in this podcast, but having a producer to help us as we grow would be amazing. We are so grateful for your support. And speaking of dreams, I would like to remind all listeners about the upcoming first ever live taping of Burn It All Down. We will be recording live at Columbia University School of Journalism in, at Pulitzer Hall in the Stabile Student Center on Friday, March 8, 2019, International Women's Day, from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. This is part of our participation in Critical Sport Communities, New Directions in Sports Scholarship, Journalism, and Activism. This is a joint symposium with Columbia University and Hofstra University, organized by Dr. Frank Gritty and our very own Dr. Brenda Elsie. Now, let's get started for this week's show. We have thoughts on Zion Williams. Amira, tell me about your thoughts. Yeah, I want to play a quick game. Just Shout out numbers here. What do you think the cheapest ticket to see the Duke UNC game went for this past week? 
The cheapest ticket? The cheapest ticket. $500 US. Jess? I don't know, because they were going for thousands. So I'm not sure. Exactly. The cheapest ticket was $2,500. Oh my God. For those wondering, is basically a Super Bowl ticket price for this past year. If you want to know the upper levels of what people are paying to see this game, there's a ticket that no. went for over $10,000 on Vivid Seats what to are this people game. Doing? Oh. <laughs> wow. Again, I want to play another game. How many seconds into the game do you think that we got before Zion Williams was out because of an injury? Nine day. 34. Yes. 34. So Shereen has it. We're under a minute. Really? That's how under a minute. Oh, wow. I didn't even realize that. So just one more, one more question. I love these games. (laughs) Roughly. Am I winning? Yes. (laughs) How much do you think Nike's stock market value fell? Oh, because he blew his shoe. Right. When he fell. 100 million. More? Oh, 500 million. 300 million. 300 million. What? So the number you're looking for is $1.1 billion, not the stock market value. So because his shoe blew. blew. So for those of you who didn't (laughs) get to see this, (laughs) UNC and Duke have a storied basketball rivalry. Uh, The first installment of the 2019 edition was just this past week. And it was particularly hyped up because obviously there's a young star who probably will be one and done. And so this was like, you know, you're going to have a few, just two chances to really see this rivalry with him in it. And so As you can see, their ticket prices were high. Barack Obama was front and center wearing this like black bomber jacket with 44. It was badass, unbonsled in it. And he had a front row seat to watch Zion's shoe break, just completely come apart, shred apart, resulting in a knee sprain less than a minute into the game. You can literally see a gif of Obama saying his shoe broke, right? And the reason why I wanted to play this game is because when we talk about amateurism, we talk about the money wrought on athletes. I just wanted us to get a sense of like the magnitude of this, right? You have thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars be poured into the game being, you know, um, spent on the game to come see it. You have Nike who has, you know, who makes billions of dollars by entering into these exclusive agreements with schools. So why is he wearing Nike shoes? Oh, he's wearing Nike shoes because Nike has an exclusive agreement, right? With the teams to dress Duke head to toe in Nike apparel. And so when, so you have all this happen, you have him sprain his knee, putting his career earnings completely in jeopardy, thinking of if it's worse, right? And, then you have a massive stock kind of, you know, tie into this. And I just, all I could think about is like, wow, there's so much it's money like on this. And I think a lot of the immediate responses were like, all right, that's why one and done sucks. Like he, like his career is at risk for what? Because of a faulty shoe that he's forced to wear because of this contract with the school. It was just a lot. It was just a lot. Okay. So I have a quick game question. How much of the money from all this bazillions of dollars do the athletes actually get? I know this one. Oh, 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 I know this one. Amira? (laughs) Nothing. Unless you're counting like meal plans. Maybe. They probably have like a nice like uh, sauna. Wait, wait, can I ask a game question? Can I ask a game question? How much does Coach K get? 
Oh. <laughs> he's like he's like taking a bath he, in his wedding right, ring. So right he's now. like university <laughs> coach, you know, turning down those high end and so gross, offers. Though. How much does he get? Brenda. Um, you know, roughly seven million, seven more and a half per year. A year. A oh, year. He got a raise. Yeah. Look at him. Look at him. He gets a raise. Wow. You know, Bobby Knight's prodigy, one of the great defenders of the amateur game. That must feel nice when you get nine million dollars a year. <laughs> so there's just you know, I felt like this was a very clear. It's like the most clear. The most I mean, clear. That's part of what's so amazing about it. Right. And so if you wanted to know, Nike's stock has recovered. If you wanted to know, his knee is a sprain and he will continue to play the rest of the season. So will we see him again then in the next, there's one there's more rivalry, rivalry game? game. So, you know, okay. knock on wood, hopefully he's not injured or anything like that. He says he's saying that, you know, everybody out of Duke says there's no, you know, he's not going to sit for the rest of the season, despite people like the Marcus Cousins being like, uh, leave. Yeah, right? he should. Yeah. <laughs> just, just go. Just yeah. go. <laughs> well, can I, <laughs> can I add that Scotty Pippen told him to rest himself? And even though he loves the game, not to give too much of himself because he wanted to go pro. I'm just going to say this. Scotty Pippen said so. And nobody listened. So I'm right. just leaving that out there. So this would just be like another entry on, you know, amateurism and one and done rules and thinking about what it means to have, you know, value placed on you for a set period of time, a fixed period of time tied to your ability and what happens when you become disposable. And part of this is not to say, oh my goodness, leave Duke, don't get an education. It's to say, it's very clear that your earning potential is right now. And when you're forced to wear shoes that deconstruct on national TV while everybody else is building billions on your back, then you can seize the production of your labor. And I just feel like, you know, it won't be the first or last time we see this, but this past week, it was a very clear moment of like, oh, just a reminder, like this is completely exploitative and bullshit. Can I just say Nike made for kids by kids? Moving on, Brenda, can you take us into our first segment on soccer and the continuous gong shows that exist in the football world? <laughs> I feel like I need intro music for this. And I like the Brenda. I like the Brenda <laughs> chuckle. It's like yeah. immediate response to that. <laughs> because it's like I'm here to kick off your weekly update in its Women's World Cup year, but people can't stop treating them like shit. And I feel like I need like some Saturday Night Live like news update. Ta ta. There you go. So there's there's three kinds of sets of issues right now, and I'm just going to intro this, and people can then you know glob on because this is a giant dumpster fire. Three sorts of issues that are ongoing: one, differences in resources for national teams; two, sexual harassment, sexist climates. And three, professionalization. So there's three kinds of issues I just want to kick it off with. One, the fiscal tax return. That's differences in resources for national teams. Number one, the fiscal tax return of U.S. soccer came out from 2018 and shows what we suspected. 
Jurgen Klinsmann earned $3.4 million, Bruce Arena $1.2 million, and Jill Ellis $291,000. I'm sorry, can you just say those numbers one wow. more time? I just couldn't hear them. They were just <laughs> too, like, I, what? I know. It's like dissonant sounds. I'm, it's like I'm sure lot, you didn't say so that much. Jill Ellis was paid. <laughs> like, okay, just say it again. Say it again. Yep. Jurgen Klinsmann, $3.4 million. Bruce Arena, $1.2 million. Jill Ellis, $291,000. But one of these coaches is not like the others in that they actually won a World Cup and qualified for another one. So something really different there in terms of standards. Number two, sexual harassment and general sexist climate. Colombia. Looking at Colombia this week, an NGO coming out of Colombia found and released to the newspaper Publimetro a letter of denunciation from two players on the U-17. That's U-17. That means they're under 17. They're kids. Correct. Saying that they had been sexually harassed by two members of the coaching staff, including the head coach. And this was sent to the disciplinary committee of the Colombian Football Federation. And since that time, no investigation has has been conducted. No, no real sanctions. The head coach is still in place. One of the assistant coaches is not. The things that they say happened to them are absolutely disturbing. And they were threatened. Their position on the team was threatened if they did not comply with the sexual advances of these coaches. They did not but it has obviously left them really hurt and and damaged. And it's been oh, a year and a half since that letter. And again, no investigation. Number, and, and this is upsetting too. I mean, we'll talk more about this because Colombia's also got this professional team that the Federation wanted women to have so it could make a bid for 2023. And in the last six months you know, all kinds of stuff coming out. And and I actually was with Intiformas, which is one of the clubs back in um, November in Argentina where they explained how terrible their conditions are. So it's a program that we looked at with a lot of hope about three years ago and has since totally sort of imploded because of the lack of resources and ongoing sexual harassment of players, even minors, <laughs> no less. So not that women, you know, kids matter and women don't, but I mean, there's a there's a special abuse and vulnerability there. Okay, finally, professionalization and, you know, people, we can talk about this, people who don't follow Stephanie Yang, friend of the show, definitely should. This week, she's done great reporting on the fact that this week, the partnership between the NWSL and A&E Lifetime had ended. You know, I just want to open that up to see if you all were following that story, but it's a it, it sort of revealed a problem in terms of the way in which people still don't know how to market women's soccer and the expectations on the teams aren't always realistic. Jess? Yeah, I mean, I can jump in on the NWSL. There's a lot here. Thanks for that, Brenda. That was really useful. The Columbia stuff is just so upsetting. But as far as the NWSL ending their relationship with A&E, which is the parent company of Lifetime, and Lifetime was the channel where they were broadcasting the games. Um, You know, that stuff is complicated. It's been interesting to watch women's soccer media try to figure out, like, is this good or bad? And how do we report on this? It feels like that tension where you don't want to say bad things (laughs) about 
the sport that you love because it already gets so much stuff. So there's been some positive, you know, people are looking at it in a positive way. Uh, Caitlin Murray had a piece at The Athletic that said that the coaches or the owners, sorry, the owners of the teams are very happy about this because one of the things that happened when A&E came on board was that they created something called NWSL Media. And so while A&E had a 25% stake in the league, they actually were getting 62.5% of everything coming in through NWSL Media. And so now, and then the nine teams had to split that. And they were saying that that was impacting whether or not they could expand, like that new owners don't like that deal. And so now they're getting all that back and they have control over that. It's difficult to say like what's going to happen here. Yahoo has the streaming Verizon via Yahoo has the streaming rights for the year. So they can't have that. And it's World Cup season. They need a platform. Apparently they're looking at other networks. It's just not... It doesn't seem very good, but there are silver linings to it, like this NWSL media thing. So, well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought up the streaming because I I was curious about your opinion on this, Jess, and and everybody else because I think one of the things that we saw with the WNBA is that as they went to streaming platforms and with the WNBA League Pass, I think that you know the numbers that they saw on there and the kind of increased viewership numbers were were in part helped my understanding by streaming packages. Yeah, that's. And, that's an you know, I'm wondering question. if you think that that, yeah, it gives maybe another opportunity for viewership. Because I find one of the things, the frustration we've talked about a lot is like, how do you find these games, right? And right. I think one of the partnership, the one of the kind of eyebrow partnership things with Lifetime in the first place, which w- was like, okay, you can kind of look at the market logic behind this. Like, we want women to watch. What do women watch? Women watch Lifetime movies. <laughs> like, well, yeah, literally sandwiched in between exactly. them every Saturday. And so yeah. I think that one of the things that you <laughs> see, though, is that sometimes people are like, I can't access Lifetime. Or why would I think to find soccer on Lifetime? <laughs> and so I'm wondering if... <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. The WNBA League Pass is great. I mean, there are still issues with it, and right. that's its own thing. But it definitely makes it way more accessible. And right, you know, exactly. there was a huge push to get people on it. And it, one of the interesting things that Caitlin Murray brought up was that because Verizon still owns the rights for this year, that means ESPN Plus can't take it on. And you get a in the U.S. That's where a lot of soccer coverage is, right? Where you can actually watch stuff. And so the, it does feel like maybe. For lots of sports in general, streaming is the future. And so if the NWSL can figure that part out, um, I don't know enough about this part of it, but it does seem like the WNBA has done something good in that regard. Well, I mean, I rely heavily or did rather YouTube for watching NWSL games because they were the first Ah. to be up there and I could have access to them. And that was really helpful for me, particularly being in Canada, where I don't have access to Lifetime necessarily, especially if I don't have cable at all. So other than going on Reddit or asking Twitter followers to send me some shady stream, which usually (laughs) works. And so I, I think that for me, and WSL was one of the most accessible ways on YouTube just for me to watch. And just for example, yesterday I watched the Continental Cup between men's city women and Arsenal women's side. And I watched it on Facebook, Facebook hmm. Live. And, and that was really easy because everybody has access to Facebook. 
stuff like you don't have to pay for it necessarily other than if you go to a cafe and need to you know pay for the time on the computer or whatnot I don't know but does that even happen anymore am I talking like <laughs> no, 1999 I do. I, or something live streaming is the only way to get most South American women's games they're huh. not broadcast yeah. anywhere yeah. but Comeball yeah. usually yeah. has a feed for it actually in CONCACAF as well so when it was like Jamaica or no I'm sorry Panama versus Argentina um Facebook was the only yeah. way I could see it yeah yeah and that's that's similarly I mean I would say that I would love to watch like the SAF, which is a South Asian Football Federation tournament, but Pakistan for the fifth year is not participating in it. So, but that's the only way I get to watch SAF as well is someone's handheld phone showing. The great thing though by doing the Facebook streaming is I can see the hilarious comments of people yeah, yeah, while I'm yeah, watching. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, ah. yeah. it is interesting. Yeah, the so. one thing I'll say, last thing I'll say about it, but Brenda mentioned that this is yet another example of like they're not sure what to do with women's sport and how to market it. And then Amira brought up that like, where are the women? Let's put the soccer where the women are, which once again, just discounts that men watch it too. (laughs) And I feel like, and I'm sorry, I should have looked this up ahead of time. I feel like there was a recent report about maybe out of Australia about how popular women's sport is in Australia and that way more people watch it than everyone thought. And like, uh, so I think that's a really good thing to keep in mind about like, we still don't really know what to do with women's sport. But I wanted to uh, just pivot quickly, like Brenda brought up everything happening in Colombia, which made me think about um, all of Shereen's reporting on Afghanistan. I was wondering, Shereen, if there are any updates about it. Thanks, Jess. Um, I published a piece last week for Think Progress about it. And currently, um, for those that don't know, and I'll just recap really quickly, there were um, allegations against the president, uh, Karim Udin Karim, of the Afghan Afghanistan Football Federation that he had sexually and psychologically abused players. So that had been reported to FIFA or some personnel at FIFA and then to the AFC, neither of which had really done anything. So you've got coach Kelly Lindsay and assistant coach Haley Carter and then team programming director Kalita Popal, who are sort of spearheading the campaign. And we've had all of them on the show. We've had Kelly and Kalida last year, and then we've had Coach Haley on on the show for a hot take, and that was recently. So in terms of development, Prince Ali bin Hussein, who's head of the Jordanian Football Federation, convened um, a roundtable in London two weeks ago to talk about this and to literally come up with points and recommendations for federations to be able to amend their processes with which to report, which is crucial. So that was a really good step. Like we're seeing movement, we're seeing discussion about it. Like right now, the entire process by which, and, and also there's other issues that come up. If the reporting isn't done in a procedural way, then that becomes an issue as well. But I mean, some people are not living in places where process and procedure is normalized or even stabilized. So people do what they need to. So I understand all of these sides. So anyways, that's what's happening thus far. And we're just waiting to go through the the system, the process of this, which is really, really, really crappy. I mean, it's not perfect at all. And, And the problem is, is that one of the biggest issues is when I was doing my research, when people report, they automatically notify the federation as well. And it wasn't even thought up by the quote-unquote founding footballing fathers who created these these sort of half-assed systems that the person who could have committed abuse was the head of the federation. So it's really messed up. Like there's no way to protect someone's safety and privacy, which is also part of the problem. But so that's that little update there on how 
terrible men are in the world of football. Amira, did you want to add something just stepping back to about, I think, salaries again? Yeah, well, I wanted to thank you for that update. I wanted to think, go back to the kind of Ellis salary thing and think about some of the other consequences or like other things that it signals. So those numbers that you give, gave Bren were really troubling. And it's not the first time that we've seen this disparity. And if you remember the last few times that the public disparity has been, come up, they're like, oh yeah, well, she got a huge bonus and we're going to like address this through these bonuses and things, the restructured deal she got after the, what was after the Olympics, right? Or after the World Cup in 2015. And I think one of the things that this shows us is one, right, Klinsman was paid more in severance than Ellis' salary. <laughs> like his severance package was over $3 million. And that is like multiple times more than her salary. But the other thing that is really, and obviously you can, it's very easy with women, with, with national soccer, with the National Federation of the United States, because they're like, oh yeah, market logic, you pay the men's coach more, da, da, da. But as we know, those arguments like don't, you know, they keep losing steam because the revenue isn't actually there, right? So you have more success on the field, but you also have the women's team being the revenue producers being what's bringing eyeballs to the table, especially, you know, when the men aren't even qualifying, but the other thing that's really instructive about this disparity is the other people who are also higher on the list over her are mm-hmm. youth coaches. So that really disrupts this idea that there's a sort of market logic to this pay structure because that there the U20 team, the U23 team, there's no even pretend like there's no pretense that they're bringing in revenue for the federation, right? Like they're not. It's not a thing. And both of those coaches are getting paid more than the head coach of the highest women's level. And I think this is really instructive because what it is, what the this disparity becomes is a canary in the minefield. Because if she's getting paid less than men's developmental coaches of the U23 or U20 team, then the women's U23 and U20 coaches are getting paid much less than that. Right. So the resources on development in in the entire kind of field and system aren't there. But also, if this is the disparity at the one of the most resourced and highest achieving women's federations in the world, then we can really be worried about the state of women's soccer in the United States and globally. If this is still the top. Right. It's no it's no secret that then there's a huge drop off with the NWSL. Right. There's. Like this is, it's such a canary in the minefield because if there's a problem here, if there's such a disparity here, if there's such a mismanagement of resource allocation here, then everywhere else is going to be fucked too. Brenda? I'm just like so excited that you brought up this issue, Amira, about infantilization and women because it comes in two places, right I mean, or there's two connecting pieces, I think, to what you're saying too. FIFA in its new development package, and I've said this a lot on the show, has a program called FIFA Forward, which was put into practice this past year in which they claim gives more incentives and more resources for the development of women's soccer. But if you control F through that program, women only come up with youth programs. 
So that means it's a way in which federations are able to actually fund male youth programs under the auspices Mm. of women and youth programs. So they can actually, there are many loopholes and that's one way that they get through it. So just to like, as an example of it, precisely what you're saying, but you're looking at how they're, you know, going downward. And if you look upwards, it's actually the very same thing. And this has, I think, a real profound impact on the way, on the marketing and on the way in which the women sees them, see themselves. Because after the NWSL break, the Players Association, the Women's Players Association responded to be very supportive of the break. And one of the things they mm. said is that they recognize the ambition of the league, which is still, quote, in its infancy. Uh-huh. And this is the type of language that is really problematic. Mm-hmm. If I was there, you know, they haven't hired me as a consultant and I'm not their union organizer yet. But <laughs> yet. I would like to say there's no such thing as a seven-year-old infant. The league is has been going since 2012 and it is not okay to continue to refer to yourselves as being in infancy. Women have played soccer for over a century. They're not babies. And if you want to read a book about the long history of women playing soccer, I know just the book for you. This is a plug <laughs> for Brenda's book, Football Era. Tell us all about it. Football Era. <laughs> Go read it. <laughs> yeah. It's, Buy it's it brilliant. And read it. Absolutely. Next up, Jessica interviews Katie Burns about Martina Navratilova's op-ed arguing against inclusion of trans athletes in sport, the sexism underlying this argument, and the harm these arguments do, especially to trans kids. I am thrilled today to have my friend Katie Barnes on Burn It All Down. This is Katie's second appearance on the show. They were our first ever guest way back in episode four. Katie is a writer and reporter for ESPNW, where they write about a whole host of things with a special focus on LGBTQ athletes and especially trans and non-binary athletes. Welcome to Burn It All Down again, Katie. Thanks for having me. I wish we had a better, happier reason for you to be joining us this weekend, but I reached out to Katie after the Burn It All Down crew read and cringed at tennis legend Martina Navratilova's op-ed last weekend, so two weekends ago by the time you're hearing this, in the Sunday Times about female trans athletes. I mean, it, it's about trans athletes in general, but she specifically targets female trans athletes, which we'll get to I want to quickly thank friend of the show, Shane Thomas, for actually sending me the article. It was behind a paywall and I couldn't get to it. So that was very kind of him. The Cliff Notes version is that Navratilova believes trans athletes are cheaters. Acts like transition is easy and simple. She incorrectly refers to testosterone as, quote, the male hormone. Katrina Carcasis, who's been on the show before talking about this exact thing, she had a really great thread about this on Twitter last week. Martina dead names her friend Renee Richards, the pioneering trans woman in tennis who sued in the 1970s to be included in the U.S. Open. She speaks for Richards. She uses Richards as her, but I have a trans friend shield. And then Martina brings up Caster Semenya, whom we've talked about on this show repeatedly, including in the last episode when Brenda burned the IAAF in the burn pile. Semenya isn't trans, and her case is only related in that sex and gender aren't as clean and tidy as the terms men's and women's sports suggest that they are. Navratilova uses Semenya in this op-ed as a foil against which to state that female trans athletes are cheaters while Semenya is fighting a fair fight. Overall, it's a stunningly basic and ignorant take on trans athletes that lacks empathy. That's the setup. Katie, what did you think when you first read this? You know, I think I was mostly disappointed. You know, as a queer person who grew up playing sports, Martina is in that pantheon of 
iconic LGBTQ people, particularly in the sports world. And whenever, you know, there's sort of an in-community discussion that spills out publicly in such, I think, a negative way, uh, that's just sort of hard. So like on a personal level, I'm just deeply disappointed. Professionally, you know, I think that what Martina wrote about exposes a lot of the simplistic language and just deep misunderstanding that people have around transgender athletes, trans women in particular, which we can absolutely talk more about. But uh, my hope is that through what I would say is largely an inaccurate and uninformed um, piece written by Martina, that there will be a fruitful discussion that comes from it that is more um, educated. What are some of the big things that she hit upon that are wrong and, and harmful that you think we should be correcting? One of the biggest things is something that you outlined in your introduction, which is the idea that transition and that identity in terms of transgender identity is something that's very easy, it's very simple, and that also it is reversed. Well, that's the thing that she sort of, uh, well, that she did say was that, you know, this idea that a man can just say he's a woman, go off and dominate women's sports, and then go back to being a dude. Mm-hmm. And like, that's just such a simplified idea and often not what we see when we're, and not at all what we're talking about. It's just this sort of bonkers idea to me that especially in the culture that we live in, that like a mediocre guy who can't hack it in men's sports is going to pretend to be a woman to dominate women's sports. Right. And then like for that to be a <laughs> to quote, get all unquote, the accolades, cool thing to do. All the, right. get all the accolades like, that women makes, are getting for being athletes. Yes, yes. Right. Like on its face, <laughs> it doesn't make sense in that regard. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so like that to me, I think is the biggest thing. And then also like, you know, just like trying on identities and gender, especially when transgender people, particularly transgender women, especially those who are of color, are the most, are some of the most targeted and marginalized people, particularly within the United States, but certainly elsewhere as well. That's just the data I know the best. It's not exactly a cool, hip, trendy thing to do. And it's not a safe kind of existence either when we talk about what violence looks like. So like that part of it is just really, really misinformed and certainly doesn't track with any of the reporting that I've done over the years. One of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you specifically about this was because of your reporting, which is phenomenal. And anyone who's interested in this topic, like you have to go find Katie's work at ESPNW on this. It's just exceptional. And I think that Martina and people who are making these arguments are often imagining elite level professional athletes, which of course, trans athletes exist on that level. But I feel like the greatest harm here is probably to children who want to participate in sport that are also trans. So I wanted to get your take on why it's important that we be focusing on on young trans athletes when we're having these conversations? Uh, you know, what I have found in terms of the, num- the amount of time I've spent with young transgender people and also just reporting on transgender inclusion in sport writ large is that what happens at the elite level and the kinds of conversations that we have about elite athletes where regardless of whether or not we're talking about sex and gender, elite athletes' bodies are policed in a very specific and ongoing way that is sort of commonplace culturally. That's, you know, and we wrap it up in this idea of fairness. You know, there's a 
an element of policing that occurs with elite athletes that it's just a separate conversation. Hmm. Um, especially when we talk about like monetary stakes, we talk about like what's on the table. Yeah. It's just completely different than whether or not a five-year-old who is thinking about gender differently can play against other five-year-olds or if we need to sex segregate at that age. That's very different than a high schooler who is beginning a social and perhaps a medical transition wanting to run on her track team. A lot of times people will use comments like the ones that Martina made and the authority that comes with them as both an, a former elite athlete and also a member of the LGBTQ community to sort of reinforce their own cult, like their own biases that they have about the topic to begin with mm-hmm. and then project that onto kids. This idea of transgender women in particular, but trans athletes writ large as being cheaters. That accusation has been leveled at Mac Beggs, the transgender boy who won two Texas girls state championships in wrestling. It's been levied at Andrea Yearwood, who is a transgender girl running track in Connecticut. Same thing with Terry Miller, who's another transgender girl running track in Connecticut. These accusations are used against kids as a means of pushing them out of sport or criticizing their existence in sport. I think that is a real issue because in particular, I find that, and Martina does this as well, where it's like we're center this construct of fairness and what is fairness in sport instead of centering the humanity of children and of people in general and thinking about, well, if sport is something that we think has all of these positive benefits for kids, why would we then create a system that requires certain kids to be left out? Instead of thinking about, instead of examining the system that is in place and mm-hmm. what it is designed to do and like thinking creatively to solve some problems and learn more about who we are as humans and just sort of rebuild a system that is more inclusive for all kids. Because we do know, you know, the CDC just released a report, like I think last month that said that, you know, 3% of youth are identifying within like the transgender umbrella. That's wow. a big it's a big number. Yeah. And it tracks with like another study that came out of Minnesota uh, last year that uh, said that 2% of Minnesota youth were identifying as trans. They want to play like, sports too. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. these are questions and issues that are being examined at every single community. Mm-hmm. And when the you know you have such a big icon like Martina saying they're cheaters, it just goes a long way to legitimize the barriers that kids already face. Mm. I would like to talk a little bit about the fact that she is intensely focused on female trans athletes and like that's what she really cares about when she's talking about fairness and that's what she's addressing. And I think that happens a lot of the time. Can you unpack that for us? Like why is the focus mostly, almost almost exclusively on yeah. female trans athletes in this discussion of fairness? Yeah, you're right that it is almost exclusively. I, I find that actually the kind of argument that Martina and others present is actually rooted in sexism. Hmm. Culturally speaking, we have an unofficial hierarchy that we use to talk about athletes and it's as follows. So you have male elite athletes at the top followed by average male athletes followed by Mm -hmm. below average male athletes and then elite female athletes. Right. Right. So there's this assumption that any person who is assigned a male at birth will be able to outperform athletically any person who is assigned female at birth. Right. And this is not limited to when talking about transgender inclusion. We see this about like with average dudes 
saying that like a JV high school basketball boys basketball team could beat the Yukon women in a scrimmage. And that's right. just like wrong. Or the idea that Maya Moore could <laughs> not wrong. compete in, right. Like just like couldn't compete in a pickup game with others, like, you know, with male at like NBA players. I'm like, that's, that's just not true. <laughs> like, right. She may not dominate, but she could compete, you know, like she's six feet tall. Like it would be fine. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of this is rooted in that. And, you know, I think you see it when you look at the policies and the proposed legislation that have like been through the states, the old IOC policy, is that transgender men are often an afterthought because the idea that somebody who's assigned female at birth could compete with somebody who's assigned a male at birth on an elite level is just seen as ludicrous. And Chris Mosier has talked about this in regards to his own story. A lot of people say, well, you know, point us to a transgender man who can compete with men. And it's like, well, that would be Chris Moser. Yeah. Doing it over and and over and over again. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like ninth in the world in his age group. Like that's wild. And Mac Beggs as well, you know, qualified for nationals in the boys category last year out of Texas, which is, you know, got a lot of wrestlers, just a lot of people. It's big here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So what is frustrating about this focus on transgender women is that I find it as something that one, just betrays a certain level of sexism, Mm -hmm. but two, continues to sort of peddle this idea of transgender identity as being invalid. And I go back to, again, centering humanity of athletes and believing who they say they are. And if it, if and if we start there, then we can sort of re-examine what's going on and look at what the system actually is doing to people and proceed accordingly. But right now, what's happening is just a continued fear that somehow cisgender women are going to lose out on opportunities because of an influx of people who are assigned male at birth who are then stealing all of these scholarships when we look at evidence of that happening, it just does not exist. So you have like a marginalized group, meaning women in general, like Uh cisgender women within sport, lashing out at a further marginalized group, meaning transgender women. And it's unfortunate. And Myron Gannell, an endocrinologist who used to work at Yale University and has consulted with the IOC, in my piece about Mac and Andrea would talk, you know, talked about how the science just isn't there yet in many regards specifically around testosterone and the effect of testosterone on athletic performance rather than just the physiological effects of the hormone. Right. So we don't know enough to really design policy in this way. Um, We need to know more uh, to have a better idea of what actually might be fair for athletes. Because right now, everyone is sort of pointing to the science and using that to justify their positions that are actually philosophical and cultural. Um, But I think that becomes quite clear in how Martina talks about trans athletes, in particular trans women, and this kind of like opposing, you know, holding up like Renee Richards as being a good example of a trans woman because, you know, she, to quote Martina, had done the deed, uh, meaning had medical intervention in the terms of surgery. Mm-hmm. And then saying that Rachel McKinnon, who's another trans woman who, you know, won a world championship in cycling in her age group, uh, somehow was not trans enough Um, because of assumptions that Martina was making about the medical decisions that Rachel had made about her own body. And like, I don't know what Rachel McKinnon's medical status is. And I don't think Martina does either. Mm -hmm. So like that just, that just position of 
people who have had surgery versus people who haven't had surgery just doesn't make sense. And that's not, and it also doesn't make any sense when it comes to athletic performance either, Um, nor is it really anyone's business as far as what people are doing with their bodies. And especially when you are trying to, as people have done, impose that standard upon children um, and younger and younger athletes. Katie, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about trans athletes. And I wanted to give you a chance right here at the end. You have an exciting new project that you've been working on. Will you just give us a little teaser about it? I do. So ESPN has a 30 for 30 short titled Mac Wrestles that's a, that is premiering at South by Southwest in a couple of weeks. I can't talk too much about the film, but it examines the journey that Mac went on for the last two years. In particular, looks at his trans, at his quote unquote transition lulls from high school to college. And I was an executive producer on the project and worked very closely with the filmmakers, Aaron Singer and Taylor Hess. And so it's very exciting and um, just truly professionally gratifying and moving that ESPN name to something that I find to be so vital. That's wonderful. I cannot wait to see it. Thank you, Katie, for being on Burn It All Down again. Thanks for having me. A final note. After we recorded this interview on Thursday evening, legislators in South Dakota debated in committee a bill to discriminate against trans kids in South Dakota who want to participate in sport. At least one conservative Republican legislator mentioned Navratilova's op-ed in arguing for the importance of this discriminatory bill. He specifically mentioned the notion that trans athletes are cheaters. House Bill 1225 was sent out of committee without a recommendation and will now be debated on the South Dakota House floor. In our last segment today, Lindsay talks with journalist Susan Elizabeth Shepard to get a media literacy lesson related to the news that New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft was charged on two counts of soliciting prostitution in a sex trafficking related bust at a massage parlor in Florida. Hello, everyone. I am here with Susan Elizabeth Shepard, a journalist living in Missoula, Montana. Susan most recently worked at the Missoula Independent. She has written a lot about sports for sites such as SB Nation and Sports on Earth. And she is the co-founder of Tits and Sass, a culture and policy site by sex workers for sex workers. Susan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So... Here's the news that we're dealing with. This week, the news broke that New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft was charged with two counts of soliciting prostitution in connection with a Florida spa that has been tied to an international human trafficking ring. So this story we found out pretty quickly is not one that the sports world is really ready to handle. I think a lot of people had very fan-driven reactions when this first news first broke, embarrassingly enough, even myself. And I think that the headlines were certainly written in a way to sensationalize this. So hopefully you can help us figure out how to talk about this. Let's start at the beginning. In these stories, a lot of times, sex work and sex trafficking are used as interchangeable terms. Can you help us break down the difference between sex work and sex trafficking? Well, it's the difference between any kind of labor and labor trafficking. Somebody who is sex trafficked is being forced into doing sex work, just as somebody who is being trafficked in agricultural work or domestic work is being trafficked into that work against their will. So you have sex workers who are entering the industry 
or remaining in the industry of their own volition. And then those who, for various reasons, are not there of their own choice. I know back in 2014, you wrote a wonderful article for Sports on Earth called The Sex Trafficking Super Bowl Myth. In that article, you really broke down the fact that every year there's a Super Bowl. There are these huge headlines saying that how Super Bowls are this bastion for sex trafficking. And in reality, that's not really true. A few of my takeaways for the article were, A, we shouldn't really trust journalists when we're reading about this because journalists conflate sex trafficking and sex work, but also that police and authority figures can often conflate the two. Why is that? And how should that help us to understand what the authorities in Florida are telling us about this traffic, about this sex trafficking bust? Well, you'll see a lot of headlines and you'll see the police announce that they've been operating a sex trafficking sting or that they've just carried out a trafficking bust. But when you look at the arrests that come out of those things, they might be a lot of arrests for solicitation or prostitution, and there could be no trafficking arrests or far fewer trafficking arrests, right? And that's kind of what's what we've seen happen during uh, Super Bowl enforcement actions. You'll see a lot of adult sex workers getting arrested. You'll see people getting arrested on solicitation charges, but you won't see trafficking charges come out of that. So we can kind of see something similar happening in Florida right now where the cops have arrested more people on criminal charges than they have identified victims so far. And they'll, you know, they're being fairly candid about that. And, you know, in the sense that they realize they have discretion when they decide who is a victim and who is a criminal and that's because sex work is, you know, that's the the one area of trafficking where you're being trafficked into committing a crime. So if you're being forced to engage in prostitution, depending on how you present to the cops, they can decide that you're committing a crime or they can decide that you're a victim. And that creates a pretty complicated situation. And so one of the assistant state attorneys in Florida told one of the papers there that uh, they are going to determine who is a victim and who isn't. And that's, you know, that's not something that you would hear if there was a trafficking bust, you know, where agricultural or restaurant workers were involved, right? They wouldn't be like, oh, well, maybe you were doing illegal restaurant work and you're a criminal. And that's, you know, that's what really complicates the situation is that they get to make this determination, right? And I think that's, you know, one of one of the things that we can kind of take away from all that Super Bowl coverage over the years is kind of like looking deeper at what those arrests are for and who's arrested and then what happens next with those people, which is the thing that you never hear about. Yeah. And that was my next question. I know you had linked on Twitter and I've been reading, you know, a lot of the people brought in are immigrants. And one of the narratives that the police, you know, set forth and that got a, got a lot of attention early on was that, you know, they were brought to this country by traffickers a lot of times under the pretense that they would be doing legal work, that they were coming here for opportunities. And then once they were here, they were forced into sex trafficking. Is that something that you, you see often? And what happens to those victims now? If you look at so the appeal has had some great 
reporting on how this has played out in New York. Um, Melissa Jera Grant and Emma Whiteford have done some great stories about raids on massage parlors in Queens. And, you know, the, there's actually a, an activist group that's come out of that where the workers there, you know, Chinese and Korean women who work in the spas have been really clear about the fact that these raids are not a way to help them that, you know, if you're going to try to help victims and trafficking, you want to really take a, a right centered approach is what the organizations that actually work with them say places like the freedom network and the, you know, the, the immigration attorneys that work with trafficking victims will say, and um, you know, what they, what they need is, you know, assistance with that immigration. And that's, that's something, you know, obviously that's become a lot more complicated in the last few years, right? Like it's much harder to get a trafficking victim visa um, and to get access to the kinds of services that they would need. So, you know, their, their position is, you know, once, once these raids happen, you know, they've, they've lost potentially their source of income and are vulnerable to deportation. One of the things that I think is really important to stress is the fact that a lot of activists, and you've written about this too, have talked about how decriminalizing sex work would actually help end sex trafficking. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, so that's, you know, and that's like Amnesty International's position. That's not a, like a fringe position at all. That's a consensus with a lot of human rights organizations. And that's because, you know, making it illegal makes things more dangerous for victims. And that goes with criminalizing third parties, too. Even if you aren't making it illegal to engage in prostitution, if you're making it illegal to be a third party, you know, be a client, be a, a manager, run one of these businesses, if you're increasing the risk for those people, they're going to, you know, place that risk on the people doing the work themselves. And, and as I said, like when law enforcement gets, you know, when they have to make the distinction between someone being a victim and a criminal, that is just a really, you know, that's a really thin needle to thread there and can wind up in a lot of victims, you know, at the very least having a prostitution arrest on their record that, you know, if they're an American citizen is going to make it difficult for them to get work. If they're not an American citizen is really going to hurt their chances of getting a visa. For media members who are covering this story and for, I know a lot of our listeners like to act as media watchdogs, you know, let's, let's call the media and hold them accountable going forward. What would you like to see from the media going forward when covering this story? Well, some of them are doing, you know, some people are asking these questions of law enforcement down there, you know, asking them, so who is a victim? How many victims have you identified? What's going to happen to them? And that's, that's great. And it's good to see them doing that now, because in a lot of previous stories around trafficking, you would see this really uncritical reporting of the police narrative without any follow up. I would like to say that Deadspin's stories have been really good around this, which is, you know, which has been great to see. They should ask questions about, you know, when there aren't any human trafficking or us, they should ask why it's designated a human trafficking bust. They should ask about the potential involvement of federal agencies in these, like when Homeland Security is involved. They should ask about why, why it's necessary to put out hundreds of solicitation arrest warrants and mugshots in the paper. What, you know, think about what that's intended to accomplish. And they should also ask why 
these stories always, you know, why law enforcement is so heavily focused on sex trafficking. You know, there's this prevailing narrative that that's the most common type of trafficking, but that's not true. It's uh, the most visible because of how it's been covered and prioritized by law enforcement. But there is plenty of trafficking and domestic work, agricultural work, construction that, you know, that it gets nowhere near this kind of coverage or law enforcement attention. And, you know, there, there are a lot of questions that need to be asked about that. There's this other part to it, which is this morality police part of this that really ties back to Robert Kraft. And look, let's face it, this is going to continue to be a big sports story because of Kraft's positioning in the sports world. I'm trying to figure out the best way, the best way to phrase this. What responsibility do the people who are going to these places to, you know, to solicit the Robert Crafts of the world? What obligation do they have? Because obviously, like, if they're just going to pay for consensual sex work, like, that's, you know, not something we want to get up in arms about. But what what responsibility do they have and what role do they play in the sex trafficking system? Honestly, that's a, that's a difficult question to ask because you're, you know, you're asking somebody to potentially intervene in a really volatile situation, right? If somebody is trapped, like if you're a, a client, the only, yeah, the only thing you can do is assess the situation as best as you can. You shouldn't try to rescue anybody you could really be putting them at risk there. So I, yeah, I, I don't know that there really is a, someone's obligation when they're hiring a sex worker is uh, the same as their obligation when they're hiring anyone else for services, asking people on the client side to, you know, make these decisions about who, who's there consensually. I, that could, that's asking them to potentially make some decisions that could make a situation a lot worse. So right now we're seeing the next debate that's happening in the media is Patriots fans all coming to Robert Kraft's defense about what a not all Patriots fans, of course, but you know, a lot of fans and a lot of people in the NFL saying Robert Kraft is a great guy, defending him on all counts. And then you have this other, which is honestly, it's coming from a lot of progressive media, which is saying, hey, uh, the, if this is all true, the NFL should ban Robert Kraft because it take, needs to take a stand against sex trafficking. What's your take on those things and kind of the the next steps with the NFL and Robert Kraft? I just I don't see why anyone would have any faith in the NFL, which has had, you know, this incredibly bad record knowing how to deal with, uh, say, you know, dealing with domestic abuse within its ranks to deal with a situation like this. Uh, It just it doesn't seem like something they have been or will be equipped to deal with well. Uh, you know, they're obviously going to give him a much greater benefit of the doubt than they would a player, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and there's there's no reason to. It's not necessarily their job to do anything about it, but whatever <laughs> whatever they do, you know, I don't think we should expect any better than they've handled, you know, yeah, domestic violence issues. Listen, Susan, thank you so much for joining us and helping us get a start on, you know, taking this story forward. We really appreciate your time and your expertise. And how can people follow your work going forward? They can find me on Twitter at Susan Elizabeth. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Lindsay. Appreciate it. Now for our favorite segment of the week, the burn pile. Brenda, 
Can you go first, please? I can. Last year, the death of University of Maryland football player Jordan McNair shed some light on the irresponsibility of university athletic programs and the danger that young players face. And this ties in, you know, with our with our discussion at the top of the show about shamateurism and what happens to players' careers, but also what can happen to their lives. So a less reported story was Braden Bradford of Garden City Community College in Kansas, who also died last year from heat stroke exhaustion after showing signs of distress in a football practice, precisely in which the team's first practice involved running 50-yard sprints 36 times. After a FOIA request from Bradford's mother, it became clear that there was no investigation. She lives in New Jersey, so she's you know been trying to get out there. There was no investigation by campus police or Garden City Police Department into Bradford's death. I'm just going to say really quickly that his fellow teammate said, CJ Anthony said, quote, I remember everything about it, the pain in his face. He couldn't breathe. The coaches were telling him he was just being dramatic to stand up, chewing him out, doing all kinds of stuff. I could tell he was out of whack. By the 10th one or so, he wanted to stop, but the coaches just chewed him up. End of quote. Mm-hmm. Quote. So I just want to say that Bradford's mother has come out in the press following this FOIA and, you know, request that that she's gotten that shows the autopsy and shows that the university, well, community college, I'm sorry, junior college and its association has done nothing to investigate this issue. So I want to burn this toxic football culture, the stonewalling of Braden Bradford's mother in this investigation and um, the excuses that we give athletics programs at the higher education environment. Burn. Burn. Jessica? Yeah. So mine's a short one, but like, should live perpetually in the burn pile. Um, It's been a rough year between wide receiver Antonio Brown and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Brown's looking to leave. The Steelers are wanting him to go. They're just being picky about where he ends up. You can have whatever feelings you want about Brown, but he's easily one of the best wide receivers in the league, and the Steelers don't seem much concerned about losing him. What I want to focus on in all this, though, is that there's been one player that Brown has had particular issues with, Steelers quarterback Ben Roethlisberger. And if anyone wants to boo or hiss at that moment when his name comes up, that's uh, fine. Uh, um, they barf. beefed before, and then recently on Twitter, when asked what the deal was between the two, Brown responded, quote, No conflict, just a matter of respect, mutual respect. He has an owner mentality like he can call out anybody, including coaches. Players know, but they can't say anything about it. Otherwise, their meal ticket gone. It's a dirty game within a game. <laughs> Go ahead, Brown. This prompted the Steelers GM, Kevin Colbert, Colbert, is that how you say it? I don't care. To release a statement backing Roethlisberger, whom he called, quote, the unquestioned leader of this group. He goes on to say that Roethlisberger's leadership role in the team can be, quote, a burden on him more often than he may like to admit because he has to, quote, it's dot, dot, dot. He's got 52 kids under him, quite honestly. Wow. So in defending his quarterback against one of the best receivers in the game, the Steelers GM referred to all the other players on his team as, quote, kids. I, these NFL guys, I cannot stand any discussion about Roethlisberger at all, especially any that puts him in a good light. I mean, 
I don't know how else to say this, but like, fuck that guy. Has any player benefited more from the fact that multiple women reporting that he raped them came before the Ray Rice video and the intense scrutiny that the media and public have put on the NFL over the last four years, last few years? I know <laughs> is the answer. The Steelers have never cared about that p- part of Roethlisberger's past ever. So anyway, I just I was sick of seeing his name this week and the way the higher-ups in the Steelers organization defend him. I will never not be sick of it, and I look forward to the day that he retires. I am happy to say burn everything around the Steelers and Roethlisberger. Burn. 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 In Kenosha, Wisconsin, Tremper High School. Now, Juliet McCurr of the New York Times wrote a piece about how an awards ceremony at the school went awry and when i say awry i mean like horrible body shaming and so like inflammatory and offensive that the aclu women's right division had to get involved so basically when the awards were being offered out the awards quote unquote and now i'm going to actually cite from the article there was the big booby award for the girl with the biggest breasts the coach giving the award, according to several parents among the 100 people in attendance, made a joke that the girl risked a concussion when she ran because of her enormous boobs. What? Now, to all the lovely people in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and I'm sure there are some, it's about 50 miles north of Chicago, Tremper High School is a place where dreams can be made, where women's confidence, young women's confidences they grow, they can be inspired. This is not the way to do it. So I just am so furious that this was allowed to happen. And the worst part for me is these are educators. These are Mm -hmm. people who are literally in charge of mentoring and coaching and teaching and showing by example, like this is not okay. And it's, it's so upsetting many, many levels and like shaming women's bodies when first of all, there's such an aspect of cheerleading in terms of the athleticism and teamwork that is completely overlooked because the sport tends to be like so, so severely exploitative. So like, I hate this so much and it made me so mad. So I want to burn all of that. Burn. Burn. Amira. Yeah, so this past week in uh, Oxford, Mississippi, Old Miss basketball players knelt during the playing of the national anthem while their team was facing Georgia. And they knelt because there was an ongoing pro-Confederacy march happening in Oxford at the school. And I'll get to that in a second. I just want to remind everybody what uh, kind of important brave action this is. For those who don't know or don't remember, Old Miss hired a new basketball coach, Kermit Davis, uh, this past year, whose introductory press conference included, you know, a list of what his vision for the basketball team was going to be. He said, quote, what is Old Miss basketball going to look like? It's going to be relentless, athletic, explosive, a team that's going to have to play on and on and on to beat. It's going to be a team that's unselfish. We're going to play fast and smart and transition. We're going to get easy baskets. We're going to try to play with great body language. He adds, we're going to be a respectful team that respects the flag and the national anthem. All those things from culture is what we're about. It's who we're going to be. So this is a program headed by a coach who literally in his introductory remarks framed his uh, idea about his culture of a team around a certain respect for the flag and the anthem, heading off protests before the season even started. So the bravery and the, you know, 
fortitude of these players who decided to take a knee is something I do want to salute. And what I want to burn is the predictable reaction by many in the community and who viewed their kneeling on Twitter. Reactions that trotted out the familiar kind of things that were from, you know, we've become accustomed to hearing, you're disrespectful, ride the bench, yada, yada, et cetera. And I just want to think about the space in which they are occupying for one second. This is, these are Black students at a school whose nickname, whose mascot is literally the Fighting Rebs. The Fighting Rebs, glorifying the kind of rebellious Confederacy. They have a Confederate monument at the center of campus. This is a school where that needed, you know, a lot of prodding to integrate with James Meredith, who rioted and shot up the school in reaction to James Meredith integrating the school. If you want to learn more about that, you can watch the 30 for 30 documentary, Ghosts of Old Miss, which looks at their football team alongside the integration effort at that time. This is a place that I gave a talk at in October, and their football room that they put me up in contained Confederate flags everywhere. It's a uh, Mississippi is a very black state. It's the state where my parents are from, from Natchez. And there's a long tradition of protest there. The fact that black students at that school have to play for a team called the Fighting Rebs are supposed to sit idly by when Confederate protesters are literally marching on campus to protect because they're mad that a plaque that gives historical context to the the monuments aren't going down mind you there's going to be a plaque that goes in front of it that says hey this this is part of a lost cause thing this is not like nobody's actually taking the damn monuments down even though people have tried and are threatening to but this is a reaction for for people even saying hey this is a problem and so i want to burn down the audacity of people who fix their mouths to say anything to these young men who chose to kneel because what they are doing is more to uphold the tradition of protest and bravery and general decency that, that you envision the flag being about. So sit down, have a seat, fall back. Kudos to those who took a knee. I see you. I respect you. I salute your bravery and burn down all of the pro-Confederacy and people who would just rather have a quiet peace rather than actually getting rid of monuments that are just a, a testament to white supremacy. So I'm burning it. Burn. 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 On to a beautiful part of the show where we get to amplify some really cool folks. Honorable mentions start and go to the Manchester City women's side for winning the Continental Cup in the English Women's Super League against Arsenal women in a penalty shootout. It was an incredibly intense game. Congratulations to Man City women. Arika Ogumbamwale of the University of Notre Dame, the superstar, is now the all-time leading scorer in the NCAA. Yes, I said Notre Dame. Want to also shout out Angel Rios of Valley and Jocelyn Galagos of Skyview, who have advanced to the 2019 
in Colorado State's high school wrestling tournament, making it the first time in the 84th year of this event that more than one girl competitor was still in contention for a podium at the start of the tournament's final day. Also want to shout out Louise Wanless, the head of media and communications at Sunderland AFC, who received the John Fotheringham Award for her superb contribution to football in the northeast of the UK from the Football Writers Association. Also want to shout out the Lorea Sport Award winners. For those of you that may or may not know, the Lorea Sport Awards are an annual award ceremony that are actually, it's held in Monaco. And I was really excited to be part of a nomination selection committee this year. So that was a lot of fun. And the award winners for this year, Simone Biles for Sportswoman of the Year, Naomi Osaka for Breakthrough of the Year, Henrietta Farkasova, Sportsperson with a Disability, Chloe Kim, Action Sports Person, Lindsay Vaughn, Spirit of Sport, and then UO Organization in India for Sport for Good Award. Can I get a drum roll, please? I don't know if that was a drum roll, but okay. Badass Woman of the Week goes to Joni Taylor, head coach of the University of Georgia's women's basketball team, for delivering a baby and then heading back two days later afterwards to join the huddle and coach again. I don't even know uh, what yeah, to say about what do you that. Say that? <laughs> congratulations, Joni. We wish you an excellent recovery and congratulations on the birth of your son. What's good? Brenda, what's good? My brain is saying, not messy, not messy. Don't talk about Messi's hat trick. The number of times he appears in my what's good is pathetic. So in lieu of that, <laughs> I'm going to tell you, um, it's very good teaching a Latin American cinema class. I, it's not my specialism, but so far we've watched three amazing films. So if anyone's interested in kind of a different cinematic tradition, we've seen Que Viva Mexico by Sergei Eisenstein, um, the Young and the Damned, or Los Olvidados by Buñuel, and uh, Black Gods, White Devils by Rocha, which is Brazilian. And um, they're all like on Prime. And I've never really seen them before. They're like, you know, so I had to step in for a colleague and teach this class. And what's good is that there's some really like amazing film out there. Not messy. Patrick <laughs> against Sevilla. 50th Patrick. <laughs> Just... Just thinking that more hat tricks than even well back hatting goals. Okay, that's it. Jess. Yeah, so I talked about it last week, but today is actually Aaron's performance in his little rock band. So I'm Ooh. really excited about going to that. <laughs> Shout out to my therapist. I had good therapy yesterday. <laughs> I'm going to make some blueberry muffins after this. And then I wanted to mention that on Thursday, February 28th, here in Austin on, at the University of Texas, I'm going to be on a panel uh, titled Broken Trust, Elite Athletics in the Me Too Era. It's at 2 o'clock. It's in B- BMC 5.208. I don't know what that means, but hopefully if you are on campus at UT, you do. It will also be live streamed, so I'll be tweeting that link out, and I look forward to having that discussion. Awesome. For me, I tremendously enjoyed the rivalry series that we talked about a little bit last week. Canada ended up taking the series two games to one. Of course, I'm going to mention that ish. Uh, <laughs> it was pretty awesome. It's like an incredible high standard of hockey. It's just, it's really, really, really great. And I also wanted to say that I was visiting my old alma mater yesterday, 
in Toronto, U of T, went back to some old haunts, the library, just walking around Hart House. I really love that campus. It, I hadn't been there in a really long time, so it was fun for me to sort of wander around and take Instagram photos of these old buildings where white men had, you know, occupied a lot of privilege and taken up so much space. So that was pretty fun. And I'm really excited to be going to my first ever Raptors game on Tuesday, oh. like my first ever. I've actually never seen the Raptors oh. play in person. So I am oh. like... And I need Kawhi Leonard to be notified that I'm coming. Mm-hmm. And Serge Ibaka, like, I think I did tweet Serge Ibaka and say that I was coming. I might not have, but I just need them to be. And also because Pau Gasol is in, in Toronto right now, probably to watch Mark Gasol, his brother. So I'm all about that. And I wish um, I could teleport there and go see the game with you. Because it is, and this is relevant to burn it all down, it is the Raps playing the Celtics. So yes, it is. It's basically... Amira versus Shireen is basically <laughs> what's happening here. Now I'm nervous. In the form of basketball players. So um, whoever wins, it'll be both of us because it's just going to be great basketball and me holding up a sign that I don't know will say what yet. So, and of course, I'm looking forward to New York City with my bi crew. Yay. Amira. Yes. So I'm going to pull a Shireen and say that there have been a lot of good things that have started to develop in my life in the past week that I can't quite say yet what's happening, but just know that it was a good week. And part of that is because I think that sometimes when you work really hard on various goals and things and some they start kind of coming and opportunities start coming I know I had a moments of self-doubt where I'm like, wow, am I ready for this? Or I don't really deserve this. And part of what made the week so good is that I was really fortunate to have a great kind of crew, my, my state college squad around me who were like, listen, I understand self-doubt, but your work is really important and you're doing really good things. And so that was really great. My family was hit with the plague this past week. And so I literally spent four days in bed all of us had the flu. It was awful. But shout out to Umbrella Academy on Netflix because we watched it all and like in our sick fog. So that was that. And then also, I, this will have already aired by the time you hear this. But tonight, Sunday night on February 24th on ESPN2 at 10 p.m., you can see me in a documentary called Unapologetic about Black women athletes. Um, yes. It's hosted by softball player AJ Andrews. It features Misty Cole. Copeland, Allison Felix, Agumake, who, who else is in it? Oh, Layla Ali. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> the, the woman who does shot put that I can't remember and other people who are fabulous Black women athletes. So they are talking about their kind of athletic trials and tribulations and experiences. And I'm just like chilling, doing historical <laughs> context, but it will probably keep airing. Uh, so look out for it on ESPN2 or watch ESPN platforms. You can also check out Arthur and Althea, which was a documentary on CBS Network that aired this past week. Uh, I was also talking head in that. And it's just um, actually a really good package documentary about Althea Gibson and Arthur Ashe and their legacies in tennis. And you can check me out being a talking head with, you know, Venus Williams and Billie Jean King. Oh my God. Those are some things that have been happening to me, have been good in my life. I'm happy not be sick. And of course, I'm super happy for New York, especially because I'm dragging all of my co-hosts to an escape room, (laughs) obviously. (laughs) That's it for Burn It All Down this week. 
Although we are done for now, you can always burn all day and night with our fabulous array of merchandise, including mugs, pillows, tees, hoodies, bags. What better way to crush toxic patriarchy in sports and sports media but by getting someone you love a pillow with our logo on it? Our Teespring store is www.teespring.com forward slash stores forward slash burn it all down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe and rate to let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down, on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod, or on Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. And you can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you will find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. We would appreciate you subscribing, sharing, and rating our show, which helps us to do the work we love to do and keep burning what needs to be burned. One more gentle reminder, if you're intending to come to Columbia to watch us in the live taping, if you could kindly go to the Facebook live event page and RSVP, that would be great. So we'll know how many flamethrowers to expect. Thank you so much. And on behalf of Amira, Brenda, Jessica, I'm Shireen. And thank you for joining us this week. And I'll suck you.